If you would, uh, open up your scriptures, though, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And if you would read along with me, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in all the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you would, pray with me this morning. Hear me, Father God. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for inspiring Paul to write this prayer for the church, Lord, knowing what he would pray for our church, God. I pray as we continue to examine this prayer, Lord, that we are encouraged with the knowledge of your blessings on us, Lord, that we would be bold in our love sacrificially for each other, Lord. God, I pray for our church this morning. Be with us, Lord. Help us to see just how important the church is, Lord. How much Christ loved the church. Be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to jump right into the sermon this morning. I have three points this morning that we're going to be going over. And the first point is Paul's prayer for knowledge. The second point is Paul's example of God's great power. And the third point is God's gift to the church. And the reason I want to jump right into this sermon this morning is because the first point, Paul's prayer for knowledge, actually became last week's sermon. So I had three points and it became really a one-point sermon last week. And, and so we're going to go over Paul's prayer for knowledge, which will be a review of last week's sermon. And so if you would, look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And it's amazing, Paul has written out a prayer for the church. Have you ever, ever wondered what Paul would pray for our church? It's probably something like this in verse 17. So I do not cease praying, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. Paul prays for the spirit of, spirit of wisdom, that hearts would be enlightened, a revelation, the knowledge of him, that you may know. Paul is praying for knowledge that the church would know. And there's three things in particular that he's praying that the church would know. If you look at verse 18, it says this, What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The first thing he prays for is is that we would know the hope we have as Christians. The second thing he prays for is that we would 
know what, what that hope is, that this glorious inheritance, he's praying that we would know this glorious inheritance that's promised to us. But he's really praying, Paul, he's praying that we would understand, comprehend, and know the grace that's been poured out on us, what he's been talking about in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. God's grace that's been poured out on us to his glory. The third thing he prays that we would know is found in verse 19. It says this, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Paul wants us to know the power of God. Look at verse 19. He he just piles word on, on word. He says, What is the immeasurable greatness, his power, according to the working of his great might? He wants us to know the power of God towards us. And I want you to see what he does, because in verse 11, he tells us about God's power. Look at verse 11. It says, working all things according to the counsel of his will. And that's, that's power. To be able to work all things according to the counsel of your will. That's power. He tells us about God's power. And then verse 19, he prays that we would know God's power. And then verses 20 through 23 gives us an example of God's power. So that leads us to the second point this morning of this sermon. Paul's example of God's great power. We'll spend some time on this point and the next point. But look what it says. Paul is praying that the church would know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. God's power raised him, raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And I want to think about this, and I want us to think this morning deeply. There's two questions I really want to try to answer this morning in this point. Two questions are this, are these. First one, why is the resurrection such a great display of power? I mean, of all the things that God has done, all the miracles, I mean, speaking everything into existence, flooding the whole world, the ten plagues, why the resurrection? Why is the resurrection such a display of God's power? And the second question I want to try to answer is, why does Paul want us to know about this power? So let's tackle that first question. Why is the resurrection such a display of power? And I want to start by actually thinking of a character in Scripture, Pharaoh. In the Old Testament. Think of Pharaoh for a second here. He's a man that had some power. In Genesis, he was the, the, the king of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. I mean, think of the story of Joseph in, in Genesis. Joseph was sold into slavery and then thrown into prison. And Pharaoh had the power to raise Joseph out of prison and seat him at his right hand making him the second in command of all of Egypt. And that's some power. Our own president doesn't have that power. Our president has limited power. He can't just take someone randomly from prison and make him vice president. It's not allowed. But I want to compare that to the power of God. Jesus wasn't in prison like Joseph. Jesus was arrested, beaten, falsely accused, innocent, brutally killed, hanged on a cross, naked and alone, despised, stricken, pierced, condemned, 
crushed by God, according to Isaiah 53. Jesus was killed. He was dead. He was in the tomb, a lifeless corpse. Then three days later, God raised him up, verse 20, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Talk about a lowly position, dead in a tomb in the grave, raised up literally to the heights of heaven, the highest position there is. And not only that, he raised them, look at verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Right, those words, when they're put together like that, it's a Jewish idiom for angelic beings. You see that in verse, or chapter 6 really clearly. He was given authority, in other words, over all the heavenly beings. That means angels. That means demons. That means even Satan himself. Jesus has authority. And not just above, but far above. Look at verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, it doesn't get any higher than that, right? Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so, at, or so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Awesome display of power. From death to the name that's above all names. This leads to the second question. Why does Paul want us to know about this power? I mean, why would Paul pray nonstop that the church would know about the power of the resurrection? You know, two years ago, I was preaching for the Easter service, and I asked myself this question, why, why the resurrection? Why the resurrection? Why the resurrection? Why is the resurrection such a big deal in Scripture? I mean, out of everything in Scripture, I mean, I get the incarnation. Right? God of the universe comes down as a man and lives with us. I get Jesus' life and ministry. It's amazing. It's captivating. Even non-Christians are inspired by, by the life of Christ. I get the cross. Jesus paid for our sins. He took our place. He paid the price that we owed. Why the resurrection? Why, why does Jesus point to the resurrection throughout the Gospels? Why do so many Christians find so much hope in the resurrection? Why do we celebrate Easter or Resurrection Sunday? You know, as I was thinking about this two years ago, I just was praying and, and, and it hit me. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead. Listen. Death is our enemy. Death is a curse. Death was not a part of God's original creation. It's a punishment for sin and rebellion in the Bible. It's just very clear on this. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. 1 Corinthians 15.21, for as by a man, that's Adam, by Adam came death because of Adam's sin. 
We live in a fallen world. A world that's just surrounded by death. You just look at human history. War, disease, starvation, death. If you just watch the news, there's something that is wrong with this world. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. The word for dead there is nikros, which means corpse or dead body. And you were dead. And look at verse 2. It says, in which you once walked. So, in other words, you're physically alive. You're walking, but you're spiritually dead. What is spiritual death? Before salvation, we were dead in our relationship with God. Lifeless to God. Unable to respond to God. Unable to do God's will. One theologian said this, spiritual death means that the most vital part of man's personality, the spirit, the inner man, is dead to the most important factor in life, and that's God. And Paul uses the word night cross, which means corpse. It's not dying. It means dead, like a corpse in a tomb, just like Jesus completely spiritually dead. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead lifeless, destined for judgment by nature, children of wrath. In other words, children destined for God's wrath, children destined for hell. And talk about a a lowly position. Before salvation, we were dead corpse spiritually, living in the realm of trespasses, living in the realm of sins, following the course of this world under Satan's dominion, under the spirit found in the sons of disobedience, living in the lust of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, carrying out the desires of the mind, by nature, children of wrath, destined for hell, utterly hopeless. And two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, verse 4, but God... Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive. He raised us from the dead, in other words. Raised or made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Listen, every single conversion into Christianity is a miracle. It's a miracle. You know, people ask me all the time, do you believe in miracles today? Yes. Yes, of course I do. Look at my life. I was dead, and now I'm alive. Every single conversion is the blind seeing. It's the sick being healed. It's the hungry being fed. It's deliverance from the power of Satan to the kingdom of God. It's the dead being raised to life. Look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, verse 6, and raised us up with him. It's Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ 
Jesus. Look back at Ephesians 1, verse 20. He, which is God, God the Father, he raised him, that's Jesus. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places as this display of God's power. Now look at Ephesians 2, 6 again. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing sentence right there. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are promised a glorious inheritance. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus had power. He had power over the natural world. He had power over the supernatural world. He had power over disease. He had power over sickness. He had power to forgive sins. But the resurrection showed that he had power or has power over death. And this is most important. Jesus' miracles showed that Jesus was God in the flesh, the creator, the Messiah, the son of God. But the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead showed us that Jesus had resolved the most devastating effect that sin has brought into the world. Death. The resurrection shows us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father. That's life. No one comes to eternal life except through him. John 14, 6. So why does Paul so badly want us to know the power of the resurrection? If you're a Christian this morning, he wants you to celebrate. You were dead and now you are alive in Christ. He wants you to celebrate. But also, he wants you to know that that resurrection power is in you. It's in you to overcome sin, to get you through the difficult circumstances of life, to glorify God with your life. It's significant. Paul is not praying that God's power would be given to us. He doesn't pray that. Look at what he prays. He is praying that the believer would know about the power that's already there. That you may know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might. Listen, if you're a Christian this morning, Paul just wants you to know the power of God that is toward us. If you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to be honest. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. There's three types of death that you find in Scripture. The first one we just talked about is spiritual death. That's separation from God. The second type is physical death. That's what we see surrounding us, right? We're all heading towards that. But the third one is eternal death. Sometimes it's referred to as the second death. That's eternity in hell. And Romans 6.23 is talking about that death. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, God is offering you life this morning. All you need to do is put your faith in Christ who came down and lived the perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, and was raised on the third day to show you that he is the way to life. Put your faith in him this morning. 
I'd love to talk with you if you are praying to God in your head right now and, and have done that this morning. Come find me after the sermon. So the first p- point of the sermon was Paul's prayer for knowledge. Second point was Paul's example of God's great power. The third point is God's gift to the church. God's gift to the church. Look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work, working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Christ is the head of all things, meaning he has authority over everything. That's what he said in the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. He is Lord of all things. He has the name that's above all names, but then Paul gets really personal. Verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. I want to look closely at this. God the Father is the one that's acting here. God the Father is the one acting. He gives God gives Jesus, God the Father gives Jesus, God the Son, authority over all things. Then God gives Jesus to the church, who is his body. The analogy is Christ is the head and the church is his body. We see this other places in Scripture where the church is called the body. The body of Christ, we're a body. When you see that, usually it more has to do with our relationship with each other. We're all members of one body. Right? We need each other because just like my fingers need my feet, and my feet need my knees, and so forth. We're one body and we need each other. And when we say membership, just so you know, when we talk about membership, this is what we mean. We're members of a body, which is scriptural. But in Ephesians and Colossians, the body has more to do with the relationship between Christ and the church. It's an intimate relationship, right, between the head and the body, right? Is not your head and body intimately connected? From eternity past, listen to this. From eternity past, God the Father elected a group of people Ephesians 1, 4 says he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be redeemed by his son. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses to become the body of Christ. Ephesians 1, 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body think the church is important. The Bible has an extremely high view of the importance of the church. 
I don't think we understand it as Christians. If you would, turn with me to Titus chapter 1, verse 1. I'd like you to see this in Scripture. It's on the board, but if you have your Scriptures, we have time to go to each one of these Scriptures. Turn to Titus 1, verse 1. It says this in verse 1. Paul, this is introduction. Paul is introducing himself right now to Titus. It's a letter to him. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. In other words, God made a promise before the ages began to save the elect. One theologian put it this way. This means that before time and eternity pass, God made a promise that he would, would be, a, or that there would be a redeemed humanity. The existence of this promise means that God created a plan of salvation through Christ before he created the world. And that's what Ephesians 1-4 says, before the foundations of the world. Here's my question. I just think this is interesting. Who did God promise before the ages began? This is before creation. This is before humans before angels. This is before the created beings. All there was was God. Before the ages began. The word-for-word translation in Greek is before time eternal. Before time eternal. Who did God promise in eternity past? The only thing I can think of is that God promised himself. Which makes sense because God is triune. God the Father, who's being talked here, promised, in other words, another member of the Trinity something. Which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And turn with me to 2 Timothy 1.8. 2 Timothy 1.8. Because that phrase is used again. It's before the ages began. It's in another place. Word for word, that's before time eternal. An eternity past. Second Timothy one eight says this. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share the suffering for the gospel by the, the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works. In other words, we are saved not because of works, not because of anything we did to earn salvation but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us, that's the redeemed, he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began, God gave us, in other words, in Christ. Here's my guess with these two verses, putting these two together. God the Father made a promise to God the Son 
to give the Son the church in him. And that's important, in him. It's important because, because Christ would have to redeem the church. Christ would have to come and die for the church to make the church his own. Therefore, the church is a gift, a gift from the Father to the Son, the inter-Trinitarian gift. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Man, I'm reading a lot into these two verses. I am, but listen, it fits really well with the Gospels, and it fits really well with the rest of Scripture. Let me read to you a few passages from the Gospel of John. If you would, turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 37. John, chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus is talking here. And this is what Jesus says. All that the Father gives me. Did you hear that? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Why? Because it's a gift from the Father. It's precious to him. For I have come down from heaven, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Now turn to John chapter 10, verse 27. Verse 27 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one shall, or no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Right? Jesus is saying these sheep, right, that the Father has given to me, they're they're a gift, and therefore no one's going to be able to snatch them out of my hand. And on top of that, my Father is greater than them all, and therefore no one's going to snatch them away from him. Turn to chapter 17, John chapter 17. Seventeen verse one. This is an amazing chapter. It's actually a prayer of Jesus to the Father, of the Son to the Father, and it's probably very similar to the prayer that Jesus is praying for us right now, interceding for us. Verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, he's praying to God, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. I'm ready to do your will, and that is to give eternal life to all those you have given me. 
And look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for, for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me when? Before the foundations of the world. I believe God the Father made a promise in eternity past to God the Son that he would give the Son a redeem humanity as a gift to the church, a redeem humanity that would serve and glorify him forever. You know what? When we read the Bible, we far too often are self-focused. Listen, the Bible is not about you. It's about him and his glory. It's about him and his glory. We are caught up in an inner Trinitarian promise. A gift from the Father to the Son. But listen, here's where we come in. What is the church's relationship to Christ? The church is the bride of Christ. God the Father from eternity past promised his Son a bride as a gift. Turn with me to Revelation 19, verse 6. It says this in verse 6, And I heard what seemed to be the voices of a a great magnitude, multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the the sound of a mighty pearls and thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our, our, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. That's Jesus in the church. Jesus is the Lamb. The church is the bride. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Verse 1, it says this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned, for her husband. That's how it all ends. God the Father gives his son a bride adorned for her husband. God brings home a bride for his beloved son as a gift. All the saints will live with Christ in the Father's house for eternity. That's why Jesus said in, in John 14, 2, In my Father's house are, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. Now turn back to Ephesians 1, verse 22. 
Because here's the amazing thing. Scripture is pretty consistent. That from eternity past, God promised, God the Father promised, God the Father chose. He chose a bride. He promised that bride to his son. Look at what it says in Ephesians 1 verse 22. And he, that's God the Father, and he put all things under his feet, that's Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Amazing. Here God the Father gives Jesus to the church. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Listen, it was an arranged marriage. Which that's all there was in this day and age. It was arranged by the Father. God gave the Son the church as a bride. And God gives the church the Son as a husband. Christ the head, the church, the body. Think the church is important? Yes. We are the body of Christ. Listen, we are the bride of Christ. But here's another question. Do you think marriage is important? Remember Ephesians. The depth of God's grace, and we've gone deep this morning. That's chapters 1 through 3. The depth of God's grace lived out in love. That's chapters 4 through 6. Right, the theology is what this morning has been. Chapters 1 through 3 is foundational to all the commands that's found in chapters 4 through 6. So I want to end this morning with application. After studying this deep theology, turn with me to Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'll be clear, that's a hard calling. You know, that's offensive in our culture. There's going to be a point that saying that from this pulpit is going to be persecuted. There's some of you right now, just reading that, you're probably offended. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. Look what Paul says in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Paul grounds this command in theology. He doesn't just say, wives, submit to your husband. He says, why? He's saying, submitting to your husband, making much of your marriage glorifies God. Now look at verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. That's a hard calling, but look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Listen, that's the harder calling. That's the more selfless calling. That's the impossible calling. Husbands, we are called to lay down our lives for our wives. We're called to lay down our preferences. We're called to lay down everything for the good of our bride. Christ is our example. To love her sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Look at verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, that she might be holy and without blemish. What Christ did for the church. And look at verse 24 or 28. In the same way. Woe. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. The church, this gift from the Father to the Son, Christ cherished the church. Listen, men, Cherish your wife. Cherish your wife. I don't care how hard your marriage is. Listen, we weren't this beautiful wife that that Christ was like, yeah, they're easy to love. (laughs) You had to die for us. Cherish your wife as, just as Christ does the church. Verse 30. Because we we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Listen, your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is bigger than you. Your marriage is a testimony of God's grace to the church. It's a testimony to the gospel. It's a testimony to Christ's love for the church. Listen, you want to proclaim Christ to a lost world? Work on your marriage. You want your children to love God? Work on your marriage. It's a testimony. It's bigger than you. Listen, your marriage is not about you. It's about Christ. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers, that it refers to Christ and the church. It's not about you and your happiness. And you just think about this for a second. Christ's love for the church came before your marriage. Right? Christ's love for the church came before marriage was invented, before the ages began. God promised this gift to Christ and and Christ cherished it. Let me put it in a different way. God didn't look down and see marriage and go, you know what, that's a good analogy for Jesus and the church. God created marriage to testify to Christ's profound love for the church. It came first. So living a life for Christ starts with the most intimate most important relationship next to our relationship with Christ himself, and that's our marriage. Men, you want to glorify God? Love your wives. Cherish your wife. Women, you want to glorify God? Respect and honor your husband. And I want to add this. 
Because I know there's plenty in here that are divorced this morning. Listen, there's grace. If you're divorced this morning, there's grace. Listen, if you're single this morning, if you're a widow this morning, if you're unmarried, you have a calling on your life. In other ways, maybe, than marriage. But we all should be rooting for strong marriages in our church. We all should be praying for strong marriages in our church to be a testimony of God's grace to this community. If you're married this morning, here's my application. Work on your marriage. Work on your marriage. If you need to go get counseling, get counseling. Work on your marriage. Let me end by reading Ephesians 5.31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I lift up every marriage that's represented here this morning. God, that you would strengthen that marriage. That we would see marriage as something bigger than us, something bigger than our marriage. Something profound. Paul says it's a mystery. God, help us to work on our marriages, Lord, to your glory. Help us, help us husbands, Lord, to cherish and love our wives. Lord, help the wives honor and respect their husbands. God, we are in a lost culture, and it's getting losser and loster. We, we are abandoning the Bible as a foundation to our culture, and, and one of the first things that's getting attacked has been marriage Help us as the church, not just our church, but church universal, Lord, have strong marriages so we can be a testimony, God. God, I pray you're glorified through our actions, Lord. I pray you're glorified through our love for each other, Lord. I pray that we realize if if we are struggling in marriage right now that we have the resurrection power in us, Lord, to persevere and love our spouse. There's marriages in here with a believer and non-believer, Lord. I pray that you supernaturally, Lord, through your spirit, just encourage that person to love their spouse. God, be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen.